Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Really, really kept the audience on tenterhooks as to who, who the co-host was going to be. It's Frank, everybody. It's okay. Um, good. Well, along with Frank, uh, we had a great guest this week. Um, Bob Boyder. Now, Bob is something of sort of, I suppose, a sort of fun selection legend in, in the US. He used to be the sort of head of research. I'm going to butcher his title here, but effectively, he was sort of the chief uh, fun picker for John Hancock. And then he also ran a series of uh, big and successful multi-manager sort of portfolios made up of those funds. So he was both building the portfolios and choosing the sub-advisors in the underlying funds. So really really experienced retired a couple of years ago writes a column for citywire you should read it if you haven't it's great um and he was fantastic on this frank wasn't he you know very open about what's gone you know wrong in the past and um yeah just really really candid yeah exactly extremely candid was the word i was going to use he was just unbelievably honest really when you when you reflect on it very nice guy we've met once before I, i very much enjoyed listening to his stories after he says 25 years but i think it's more like 40 years isn't it in the in the biz yeah, I think it's definitely a long career, and I suppose that's the advantage of having someone who's who's retired or slightly away, removed from it. They 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 can be a bit a bit more open about some of those things, and I suppose the theme of our conversation, such as there was one beyond mistakes, was was undiscovered managers. He talked very openly about how uh, a lot of the the mistakes he and his team made came from sort of trying to push the envelope, trying to find people off the beaten track, trying to fish uh, in the bottom of the categories or indeed in asset classes that were sort of more esoteric or you know n- not not as popular and that's where or countries even and, and that's where things could go wrong right yeah could 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 and did but obviously quite a lot of these things went well for him you know early and often he said that's what that's it that was his key to success to find these areas and and plow in yeah absolutely um just no spoilers here other things we touch on a little bit of a China small cap investing, but to Frank's point, very early compared to, you know, when a lot of people are doing it, i.e. now. Um, and he gives what I would think is a, is a super tip, a super fun selection tip, which is kind of obvious. Maybe you guys all know it and it's just Frank and I who are impressed by it, but uh, look out for it because I think it's uh, pretty great. So I think we've teased it enough. Without further ado, here is our interview with Bob Boyder. Bob Boyder, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, at, let's be honest, you know, relatively short notice. So thank you for fitting us in and joining us for this episode of Mistakes Were Made. Now, we had a, a brief chat earlier when I was checking uh, that you were that you were coming, and you and you said to me, "I've been writing down some of my mistakes on a piece of paper uh, in prep, and I've already filled the whole piece of paper." Now, I don't know how much of that is uh you you being humble how much of it's true uh you don't have to do the whole i'm assuming a4 paper here i you know as opposed to like you know <laughs> a2 or something um but you don't have to list all of them but i mean what are the highlights thank you for this opportunity but i i, I would i would frame this page of mistakes in, in the following way um well, i used to tell my staff if you're not pushing the envelope uh, and you're not getting outside your comfort zone, and you're not making mistakes, then you're not being adventurous enough. So I would frame it by saying that some of the errors and mistakes were simply by pushing too hard. And we'll talk about those uh, as we go. The other types of mistakes as I've gone down the list are mistakes of omission. 
you know, oh, I could have got this brilliant manager or I could have, I should have got this insight much earlier in my career and I missed that one. Um, the shoulda, woulda, coulda uh, crowd. And I tend to discount those. Uh, errors of omission, um, you know what? Not worth spending time on. It's the errors of commission where you, you say, I know how to do this job. I have a strategy. I'm walking down the path. I know what the path is like. And I did something odd or unusual, and that resulted in a, a manager selection not working out. Um, those are the ones uh, I think you get forgiveness when you make a single mistake the first time, and that probably eliminates half of my page. You get less forgiveness if you make that same mistake of commission two or three times. Uh, then you need a, a talking to, either to yourself or you know by your by your boss or by your board. Um, so you know those are sort of the errors. You know we were pushing the envelope a little too hard, or uh, we committed an error where uh, the mistake was knowing a, a path, having a strategy and breaking off that strategy in some way, shape, or form, and, and it ends up in, in, a, in a place you don't want to go or, or the managers don't want to go. It begs the question, Bob, can you give us some examples? I absolutely can. Um, so the, the first one is how you end up in the trap of, of wandering off a path that you're on strategically and then going and repeating the mistake. Um, or, or in this particular case, um, I was telling my, my group to start to go fish among managers where they were large, they had a lot of skin in the game, they were retail oriented, they had a big name manager running the strategy so that you know people had a lot of skin in the game, which, which as you know, for me is, is very important. And um, we, would, we would- Very, very quick sidebox. I don't want to distract from this. We recently had a guest on who argued against this. So let's, we'll, I want to come back to this point of skin in the game because I, I want to hear some, some counterpoints, but, but let's, so I, I digress and, and we, were, we were onto the meat. So, so continue. Yes, I did read that piece and we, we have a lot to talk about. So, so we went down the path and the first time we did it, it worked brilliantly. Um, I told people to go shop, you know, in the one star funds or the people who were at the bottom of the one, three, five, and 10 year uh, performance rankings and to try and glean out whether or not it was a style issue or a performance issue or a manager change, like what was the, what was the cause? And, and if, the, if it came back as a style issue in the late 1990s because of the, the, the growth bias, uh, we would go and, and start poking around. Um, it was controversial because you go to present to your board or to your members and you say, here's this new shiny object for you. By the way, performance sucks. <laughs> One, three, five, and 10 years in the bottom decile. But we think it's style related or it's got, you know, the, the, the work that's on the performance is, is explainable. And once it turns around, either stylistically or, or temperament or, or whatever drove this bad period, um, it will be brilliant. And so, Bob, so just to interrupt, so, so I'm clear, so, so the, you told your team to look for managers who'd been 
underperforming uh, so big name firms uh where lots of skin in the game because you think okay the firm's good uh, they've got skin in the game that that's obviously an, an important thing and then but but you said but look for the managers within those firms who are not running the biggest name funds or who are underperforming and things is, is that the broad concept that's the broad concept that's a tough it's sell a very very <laughs> tough sell so you you know you you learn okay I got to push this through the board. I got to push this through my sales force, through my, my network. Um, and you take a lot of organizational risk on your, on your shoulders as a manager selection. Now, the first time we did it, 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 we hit a home run. It was a style issue. And that manager turned around and, and over the next 10 years, went from bottom decile to top decile. So you think, okay, I got this. <laughs> um, Without recognizing the peculiarities of the situation, we then tried to replicate that and said, we're pretty good at this bottom fishing exercise. Um, we should go do more of it. Um, and I will tell you that in subsequent attempts to do the bottom fishing exercise, uh, we started to bend the rules and we said, well, we're just going to hold on till the things turn around where we weren't really clear about whether it was a style issue or a temperament issue or an analytic issue. We just thought for hubris reasons, we were pretty good at bottom fishing because we'd had some success. <clears throat> and it turns out, um, I would say the learning out of that is if you're fishing in the bottom decile, um, chances are the bad performance is going to persist. And that odds do not fall in your favor uh, unless you're very, very fortunate and find these, these rare instances. So uh, the mistake subsequently was too much pride, too much hubris in having had one success and thinking that that was uh, repeatable going on in the, the future. Um, and the logic for, 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 for sort of fishing in that bottom quartile, you know, trying to find these, I suppose, the diamonds in the rough, was what was just that you could still be a great manager just you were out of style or what what why did you come up with that brief in the first place it, it was a big big name manager um and it, they had a very distinct deep value style and in a in a market where growth was all the rage you know late 1990s you were getting the internet bubble uh you had the the breakdown in 97 and 98 in uh, emerging Asia. And so where all the value was, the really deep value where you could go buy semiconductor companies at four times cash flow, uh, you know, which by today's mindset is mind bogglingly cheap, um, where you could buy the industrials that everybody came to love in the, in the late 1990s, uh, or sorry, late 00s. 2007, 2008 in the emerging markets, they were all the rage in the deep value portfolios and they were completely abandoned uh, because of the tech bubble. Subsequently, we thought that we were pretty good at this and, and we didn't have the same insight into what was causing the root of the low performance problem. And we were more or less hoping on a wish and a prayer that things would just turn around. So how long did you run these 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 dog funds? I was going to say yeah, because you yeah you mentioned one time it went really well and then other times it didn't. So if there was one success, how many 
failures. And yeah, and, and then, then I'm, yeah, exactly Frank's question. How long did you give it? How long, at what point do you, do you throw in the towel and say, actually, guys, we've, we've, we've not got this one right? Yes, that's a great question. So let, let, me, let, me, let me say that, you know, over the course of the 25 years that I did this, um, we as an organization ran 300 and some odd mandates. And as I was saying to Frank, even if you're brilliant, drop dead brilliant, and your hit rate is 75%, which would be extraordinary as a, as a fund picker to hit, hit on 75%. It still means you're going to have 75 mistakes. <laughs> um, and then the question is, how long do you give it? And, and no matter what answer I give you, I can give you a couple of mistakes where we either cut our losses too quickly, held on just the right amount of time, or uh, waited way, way, way too long. Um, but in general, uh, you know at about th the three-year point. Gave them three, and boy, the minute... One of the things we notice is, is when we had a, a reason for bottom fishing that way, and we would say, for example, it's style. Um, the minute the style turned, we were looking for instantaneous gratification. And boy, and you know, the minute the tech bubble burst, we got instant gratification. I mean, it was just boom. Pre-tech bubble, you started doing some of this. It paid off big when the tech bubble burst. You you had the wind in your sails and the support of your board, so you did a bit more, but, but some of the future ones didn't work out so well. Did you then just call time on it? Did you, you this, this, this sort of, policy strategy or did you still dabble or you know were you burnt enough that you never did it again or did you just refine the process for, for doing it um we we found new ways of making different you know a similar mistake um where we said okay well we're not going to go fish necessarily in the bottom of the bottom but we're going to go fish outside of our comfort zone so bottom fishing like that is definitely out of your comfort zone so we started to go fish in asset class areas that were completely different. And in some instances, we made a lot of money. So you, you get used to getting out of your comfort zone and, and, and you say, okay, I can have some success. So roll the clock ahead to um, 2010, 2011. You're coming out of the 07, 08, 09 debacle. And the world is starting to light up again. And we went way out on a limb and chased down a mandate for China small caps. So the concept was find an established manager. Um, we looked at about 10, only one had decent pedigree um, that had a process that was domiciled in the mainland um, that had a reputation had skin in the game. Uh, the pedigree came from the fact that this particular manager was unbelievably well-connected politically and, and could suss out a value proposition that said, we don't get involved in scams. And in the China small cap asset class, scams everywhere. Wild, wild west, worse than the United States in the 1920s. I just and the, the, this particular manager's value prop and a, and a history to show that uh, there was a lot of scams that were avoided uh, in, in the performance. And we thought, oh boy, 
So we were operating out of our comfort zone. We took the board out of their comfort zone and we took our compliance department out of their comfort zone. People are only now warming up to China's small cap. And we're talking 15 years ago. It's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised your compliance team didn't like yeah. you. Oh, and when they found out that, that there was no deep embedded compliance team, that they had to they had to sign up in the US and, you know, sort of export that functionality to uh, US lawyers and US compliance department, you know, kind of rent a board. Uh, it was, uh, we were really, really pushing the envelope. And, and I, I would say that, you know, 18 months later, what we learned was um, the, the pervasiveness of the scams that were being run was so broad and so wide eventually it would even catch this particular manager and caught this manager in a really big way in a really big position um and and that blew the value proposition and i've gone back over and over and over to see well what did we miss and what we missed was we simply pushed the envelope too hard um that asset class that manager too many red flags, not ready for prime time. Um, and we tried to force it in. And uh, that was a, a mistake. I'm going to come in with a terrible joke about, you know, this being communist China, there are there are red flags everywhere. Um, but be that be, be that as it may. Um, serious question for you, though, is the, the, the first big sort of thing you talk about here is you know, pushing for, you know, find, trying, trying to find undiscovered managers, right? And well, actually, both these both these examples are undiscovered managers, whether it big mainstream firms in the US or, you know, you know, the, the wild, wild west of China and stuff. And I feel that manager selectors, analysts, whatever you want to call them, like doing this, right? This is where you feel to a degree that you can sort of prove your prove your worth, right? You know, I, it's more fun than buying, a, you know, a PIMCO, right? Isn't it? Can you ever stop trying to do this as a, as a, as a fund selector? And should you? I, I, sh I would say you should not ever stop doing it. Um, in fact, one of the questions we asked every single sub-advisor was, um, I, I sort of casually referred to this as weird Uncle Charlie. Um, is there someone in your organization who has been running money for 15 or 20 years whose strategy is just so bizarre that you never trotted out to any institutional buyer? Um, but when you look back over the the period of time, one, they're still managing money. Like they've got a 15 year track record. They must be doing something to add value. And you as an organization have kept them around, um, you know, for some reason, um, please go and, and bring those strategies and bring them to us and let's have a look. I would find periodically managers who did things very, very differently. And there's, there's one who, who lives at a very large organization uh, and he went undiscovered for 10 years. And um, we brought into the strategy because uh, his risk-adjusted performance was uh, around balanced fund level, but equity performance like the S&P 500. And I looked at this and I went, you know, over 10 years, th there was almost no period of time when the strategies materially underperformed um, and yet you looked at the 10 year track record and you go, wow, th this is amazing. The challenge there was this, this manager had no boundaries on where in the capital structure they 
could invest. High yield, preferreds, equity, um, private equity, uh, all these different little bits and pieces. So where do you categorize this manager? Are they balanced? Are they equity? Or what is it? Um, you know, good news for us, uh, we brought the mandate on. Uh, bad news for us, uh, five years later, after everyone else figured it out, um, especially at retail, uh, they closed it and wouldn't take in any more money. Um, and my anecdote about that particular manager is um, during the 2009 uh, debacle, he, and it's a he, um, literally broke down on the phone because he lost 10% of his investors' capital and thought that that was just the worst thing ever, <laughs> ever, 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 to, to, to actually lose money. Um, and, you know, we're all looking at portfolios down 40 and 50, in some cases, 60%. And he's crying because he's down 10. And he was among the very first of the managers to hit new all-time highs, you know, late in 2011. So you, you get used to this idea of going into the deep, dark corners of some organization's, um, uh, you know, office and saying, give me somebody like this. Sometimes it works and, and, and then you find, you know, you, you get mistakes. So we had a, a, a manager who was given to us as, quote, the most brilliant individual we have ever put in our very large organization. He can quantitatively replicate any one of our portfolio managers' performance. And in fact, he's been used to giving them ideas so that they can populate their, their performance. And we failed because this individual was so brilliant. We failed at one of the most basic tenets, like, well, how come is he, he's not managing a lot of money today? And as it turns out, that was a fatal flaw um, because he was a great stock picker, but a terrible portfolio manager. Yes. I don't understand how that, how that adds uh, up. So I, let, me, let me try it this way. I could pick the best oil company, in fact, the best three oil companies, but I overweight oil at the expense of... of right, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. Skin in the game. So let's get into this, all right? So we had a guest on the other day, Simon Hallett, who argued against skin in the game. He sort of, his argument was instead that um, managers uh, should have stock or be a partner in, in the firms that they, that they work for. And that's why, that way they have, uh, they're incentivized by the sort of the alpha the firm can produce. They have sort of, you know, global market sort of beta exposure, but also this way they're not, overly invested in their own fund uh, and because that can make them maybe risk averse or make, make them make too many emotional decisions. And I know that you disagree. I know lots of clever people disagree. Why does it matter so much to you when, you know, when you selected managers, why was it such an important thing to, to look at? Well, let me, um, let me try and dispense with what I think is one of Simon's arguments. And that is that um, a manager who's got too much invested in their own strategy um, or, or the majority of their assets in their own strategy is going to be prone to making emotional decisions or might make decisions detrimental or it might be too safety conscious. And I would say that any manager that's in that position shouldn't be on the mandate. Um, 
because when you run a billion, 10 billion, 15 billion, $25 billion worth of assets in a single strategy, um, you should feel that weight and heft of every single one of those dollars as though it were your own. And if, it, if they're not feeling it, um, then something's wrong, I think, with the structure of the organization, with, with the mentality of that particular manager. If you're running a big amount of money, it should be an emotional decision because you should understand the gravity of what you're doing. Like it's impossible for it not to be emotional. It's is, is that sort of what you're saying? Not to be emotional, and you should have. If you're successful, you should have worked through those issues already, on your way from running a small amount of money to running a very large amount of money. You should have passed all those hurdles already, and 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 you should be sort of mentally and psychologically prepared. I would turn the argument the other way. Um, if I'm running an all bond or an all equity mandate, um, I have skin in the game in, in that. I'm expressing my belief when I put my assets in my strategy that this is the way to run money. And I believe it with every single fiber of my body. I am completely and entirely committed to running money this particular way. It is not uh, uh, simply a profession. It's an avocation. I completely understand um, where your other guest was coming from. Um, I would just say I, I, I slightly same arguments just sort of turned on their head. And you wouldn't back someone who wasn't um, in, sufficiently yeah. invested in their in their own strategy. Exactly. And and an, another really great question we used to ask, uh, you know, especially of the bond guys, is like, who have you got your money with on the equity side of the house? Um, because that tells you who they think is drop dead brilliant. And and it, it's remarkable that some of the marquee names in a, in a firm aren't necessarily the, the go-to people where where the other managers have their money. And this came up with one of our very large institutional managers. Um, they all said the same thing. The equity people, the bond people, they said, yes, most of our money is in my own strategy. But my balance in this particular case was to have money and almost all of them had money in some of the firm's hedge funds where the stock selection was really idiosyncratic and performance was spectacular. But the common thread was they all had money with the guy that ran the technical portfolio, not the technology portfolio, the chart-based portfolio. And the rationale for them was we're all stock pickers. We spend our time doing fundamentals or doing bonds. This guy does something completely different. He runs a portfolio looking at the squiggles on a piece of paper, the charts, the accumulation and distribution patterns. That is a diversifying style away from us. I'll accept that argument, but I still want to see 75% of your personal assets in the strategy that you run. Top tip though, isn't it? Yeah. Ask, ask the PMs whether who they like within their firm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a sharp one. Fantastic. Well, that was our interview with Bob. And look, you know, I think I always say this, but there was a lot there, right, Frank? A lot, a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah, huge amounts. Yeah, you're getting like a download of, the, of his extensive career. I, I loved some of the adages he had. And, and the thing that we both were so impressed with was asking individual portfolio managers who else in their firm they had money with apart from themselves. I mean, it's so obvious, but... It really speaks to how highly rated individuals are within a company. Yeah, exactly. That sort of, you know, ask the bond guy, which equity guys they rate and vice versa, you know, 
beyond their own funds where where are they putting their money yeah no i, th- I thought it was a, lo- a lovely little tip and as i said in the intro maybe one that people know but regardless i'm easily impressed so uh so i was um but yeah no, look and i also thought this, this undiscovered manager thing's really interesting because i think it's where a lot of people uh in manager research particularly when you're young you know this is how you try and make your name right as you know i picked x-star manager before everybody else or you know got in and caught that upside before before it all went wrong and things um but you know fraught with danger basically yeah fraught, fraught with danger i mean he describes it as fishing in the deep dark corners of, of the organization for for possibly the the most brilliant person who who's brilliant and overlooked for the right reasons but there is something to be said for the early and often kind of mantra of of asking someone within a group who is who is the market ignoring who is actually the fund that should have a lot of money in it Uh, i think there's so much to that because you you catch the trend before other people do yeah no exactly and to his point yeah yeah as we said already early and often you do it cut your losses so whatever he said you know one year you can start to see this the warning signs three years you know you know it's gone wrong and you know if if it's not going to be good get out I thought it was also good, you know, touching again on, on, on Skin in the Game. Seems to be a little recurring theme of, of, of this series of the pod. And nice to hear Bob's Bob's rebuttal to the argument that this doesn't matter. And, and, and in fact, it does. Um, you know, I'm still none the wiser as to, as to what I would do. But um, luckily, I'm not you know, a fun selector. <laughs> good. Well, look, I think, um, you know, awful lot covered in this. Um, I'm off on holiday by the time this goes out, so I'm gonna, I'm going to say goodbye now. I think, uh, but I, ho- I hope I hope all the listeners are well. Um, Frank and Chris will be back, I think, for the next episode of this. And uh, on that note, it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger, and goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.